Well, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Turn your Bibles tonight to the first chapter of the book of Revelation. So our introduction last week, we're only going to get four verses this week. And there's a reason for that. These first four verses lay out, who's this all about anyway? Because sometimes when you read the book of Revelation, you almost get this picture that it's, you know, like some freakish novel uh, that has been put into an awful lot of movie scripts. Amen? You, you can kind of look at it that way. It's like, man, these seven churches and all these bowls of wrath and, you know, we have these scrolls and all this crazy stuff that is contained in the book of Revelation. And yet, without question, there is one singular focus of the entire book of Revelation, and his name is Jesus. And so, in these opening sentences, this handful of words, we find the picture that we need to grasp in order for us to really move forward into the rest of the book. Because if you don't get these first four verses, then the rest of it, honestly doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And if you get these four verses, and you realize what's being said, and you lay hold, and then you begin to read the rest of the story, the rest of what the Lord has to say, then it makes absolute sense. And in fact, some people, when they read the book of Revelation, they actually come to the conclusion that maybe God is mean, or God is you know, vengeful or wrathful or just filled with these, you know, almost terror tactics, if you will, of dealing with mankind. And it's simply not the case. Because who this is, is the same Jesus that died on Calvary's cross. Who this is, is the same Christ who said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the same man who looked at Peter and shook his head and yet forgave him. That begged Judas, are you sure you want to do this? And so tonight, who's this all about anyway? The opening words, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, tonight again we just want to draw from the well of your Spirit. And so tonight, Lord, we ask You to speak to us. Work in our lives. Mold us and shape us. Help us to know and understand. Help us to get the subtleties, the nuances of You, Jesus, speaking, Lord, into our hearts, the truth of what You want us to glean from this book. And so, God, we give You this time. give You our minds, our hearts, our lives, our families. Lord, this world that we walk on, God, would you just speak to us loudly, clearly, concisely. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 1 begins this way, the first four verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Underline it, circle it, highlight it. That's the book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of a whole bunch of really bad things that are going to happen in the future. It's not the revelation of what's going to transpire uh, in the life of national Israel by itself. It's not the revelation of what world history is going to look like. It's not the revelation of a whole bunch of details about future events. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, all of those things that I just mentioned are part of who Jesus is. They are the way He will work in our world and has worked in our world and will continue to work in our world. It is His character that comes into view. It's His characteristics and qualities that we will see, which God gave Him to show to His servants. And so this message comes directly from the Lord Jesus Himself, given to us, Uh, through His servants, and it goes on to say things which must shortly take place. And when people read that initially, they look at it, and they kind of, this is where they get the 
thought process that ah, it's just these things can't possibly be true. They're figurative. Uh, they must have been meant you know, in some way that we don't understand them. The, the people get stuck in verse 1 because it says shortly. It uses words that we have translated into English that, that we know to mean one thing, but in fact, in the original language, it is not what they meant. And so we're going to get into these things tonight. That's important to understand what the Lord is speaking to us. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Now when someone signs something, and I want to give you a little bit of a preview here. When someone signs something and it says, you know, love Jeff, that means that you can trust that it was in fact my thoughts that are being communicated. And so the Lord is going to signify this particular book by his own hand saying, this came from me. These are my words. These are the things that I want you to know about what lies ahead and who I am. Who bore witness, notice this, to the word of God. And so nothing contained in the book of Revelation should fall outside of absolute, total, 100% agreement with everything else that's contained within the Bible. You're not going to find contradictory statements. You're not going to find contradictory conditions. You will not find things in the book of Revelation that don't make absolute sense when viewed through the eyes of the rest of Scripture. Why is that important? Because if you just read the book of Revelation and you take it as some do completely literally or you take it completely figuratively, you will come to the wrong conclusions about Christ because you must read the book of Revelation with a full understanding of the rest of the Bible. You need to know that God, in fact, is love. Because if you don't get that God is love, and then you see that He allows the rest of the world to go through this tremendous suffering, you would wonder whether God changed His character or His nature. This testifies to the Word of God, all of it. Not just to the words found in this book, but to the Word of God. And to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And to all the things that he saw. So there are three things there. We'll look at those in a bit. Testifies of the word. The witness of it. The testimony of Jesus. His full life. All that he is. All that he has ever been. And then finally to all the things that John actually saw. John saw these things come alive. Blessed is he who hears. Excuse me, blesses he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So again, a second reference to it being somehow close. These words are 2,000 years old. We look at it near and close, and we start thinking shortly, and it's like, okay, well, that's for an American, that's three and a half nanoseconds. You know, it's as long as it takes us to get a burger at, at In-N-Out. It, you know, shortly, close, near. It's like if I have to go across the street, that's a little too far to go get something done. If I, and that's why we all have, we now have remote controls for everything. Amen? Isn't that nuts? It's like we have remote controls for our fork. It's like, come fork. You know, and you press the button. No, I'm just kidding. But that's, we'd like that if that could happen. It's like we could just sit there and press our, our remote. How many of you saw the movie Wally, the, the the floating chair thing? Isn't that us? It's like sitting around just totally, you know, we can't even get out of our own way, and we just ride around in our little floating chairs with our 44-ounce big gulp sitting there, and we don't have to get up. You see, when we think of shortly, we think of really short. But that's not what this passage says. It's using some very unique language in the original Greek. And it's talking about a period of time that relative to eternity will be short. Now, when you think about eternity, that's kind of a long time. So a few thousand years could be short relative to eternity. It's not short relative to your lifetime. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And so he tells us how this will originally get distributed. I was watching a little clip from Oprah today. Now, I'm not a huge Oprah fan. I think, you know, she has some 
find things to say occasionally, and not everything she says is, you know, of the devil. But at at times, I kind of question, you know, whether she's in it for money or what, and I think that's mostly it. But but she she was talking about her book club, and she was talking about the distribution of this book, and that up to this point, through normal channels, with this particular book that she was recommending, Ruby was had a gross sales of about a quarter of a million books. And she basically made the statement that by tomorrow it will be probably a million books because she mentioned it. You want to get the word out in the best possible way. And so these seven churches are the seven strongest churches. All of them have a link to the Apostle Paul. Each one of them would have a solid doctrinal foundation. And so this letter is going to go out in the most effective way possible at that time. And interestingly enough, as we will see when we get to the seven churches, that those seven churches have had a hand in the rest of the history of the church age. And so God is very good at distribution. Today, we'd, you know, we'd start a Facebook page and get a blog going and we'd have all these things that would happen. You know, we'd somehow figure out a way to pirate some, you know, some waves up to a satellite and then back down and get broadcast all over the world. But at that day and time, if you wanted a Christian message to get out to Christians so that they could be encouraged and then instruct other people, it would be through these seven churches. To the seven churches which are in Asia. And then we find that Pauline greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is. You remember Jesus talking about himself when he said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. He's using that same formula here. To him who is, who was, and who is to come. And the reason I tell you that, when you look at that phrase, I am, in the original language, it's all three tenses of the verb to be. I am in the past, I am right now in the present, and I always will be in the future. So he's saying, it's me, it's I am. I am the uncaused cause. I am the one who's responsible for all things that are being as they are because I always was, I am today, and I always will be in the future. To him who is right now today, who was in the past, and who is to come from the seven spirits, who are before the throne. And so the title here, the revelation, I want you to notice this. It's not, it's not just a revelation from Jesus who is the Christ, but is the revelation of a very unique distinction here. Because I can give you a revelation from me. Amen? But for me to give you a revelation of me would be a very different thing. Amen? I can tell you something that just simply comes from me. The sky tomorrow morning will be blue. But a revelation of me is that, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm kind of cranky. That's a revelation of me, not just from me. It's who I am. I'm describing to you more than just facts. I'm giving you character pieces of who I am. The same is true for this book. And as I shared with you last week, the word revelation uh, simply is a Greek word, apocalypsis, which is the unveiling. But it's a little more than that. It's, It's more of a disclosing or an uncovering. Yes, it's just like if you've ever seen a statue unveiled and you know the drapes over it and somebody's standing there with a cord and they pull on it and all of a sudden, boom, there it is. It is that, but it's deeper than that. It's actually to reveal 
how that got that way and why it is the way it is. It would be as if the tarp was over the block of marble, and when the unveiling occurred, what you saw was Michelangelo carving David, explaining to you every single stroke of the carving. Not just the carving itself, but how it got there, what it's made out of. It's kind of like the people at Sam's Club and Costco that tell you everything you ever wanted to know about a food processor, right? They're unveiling the food processor to you. You can actually put your Buick motor in this, and you can chop it into little tiny bits. It's got titanium steel blades, and it will eat everything. You're not just learning about the food processor. You're learning how it works and how it functions and why it does what it does. It is unveiling the whole of the thing, not just the thing itself. This thing happens to be an unveiling of Jesus, who Jesus is, why he is what he is, what he will do uh, in the future. And so there are two basic things that we're going to see in this story as it unfolds before us. One is the revealing of the person, the unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. And the other is the revealing of the church age, which is all about Jesus. Amen? And the church age is you and I, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in the world today, and throughout the history of the church. And that church age is one day going to come to a very abrupt end. You know it is the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15.52 that moment, that twinkling of an eye, boom, we're gone. We're absent from the body, present with the Lord. We're out of here. But right now, that church age is still ongoing. So in this unveiling of Jesus Christ, he's actually going to be unveiling things that were then future. He's still unveiling things that are future today. Haven't happened yet. As far as I know, we're still waiting for the rapture, unless I'm in real trouble, and so are all of you, and we're waiting for the tribulation. It's a bad deal. So there are some things that we know in this unveiling that have not yet happened. So we're seeing the person of Jesus Christ along with what Jesus intends to do, starting at the very beginning, which was right after the day of Pentecost, by the way, 40 days later. The church begins. You can see that in Acts chapter 2. There's the Feast of Weeks is, is taking place. Boom, the church is birthed, and it has been going from then to now. But one day, there's going to be a last member of the church. Did you know that? There's actually going to be somebody who's going to be the very last member of the church. And I'm talking about the big one. All of us. The church age. Those who have named the name of Christ. And so this unveiling is of Jesus himself and everything he intends to do all the way into the time he comes and establishes a new heaven and a new earth. So it's a big piece of information that we're getting a hold of here. And basically, Revelation is the climax of time. Do you remember the very first verse in your Bible? In the beginning. Amen? Time had a beginning. From God's perspective, time is both irrelevant and unnecessary. Do you understand that? God dwells outside of space and time. He can be anywhere at all points in time. He, he can transmit himself from one part of time to another part of time. So as far as he's concerned, time doesn't even exist. He's irrelevant uh, in, in that sense. So in the beginning is in reference to we, the people, in the beginning refers to when Adam and Eve came on the scene, creation happened, the worlds were formed, and all those things that move us forward till now, until the end of time. When God's finally going to say, look, you're all in the heavenly kingdom, my kingdom has fully come, there's no need for time because you and I will then be eternal. Why do we need to know? Uh, matter of fact, I'm going to rebel if there's a clock in heaven. I'm sick of clocks. I don't want to know what time it is. When I go fishing, I'm coming back when I'm good and ready. If it's a million years from now, it's when I'm coming back. You won't need time in eternity. So this book is the climax of time. Time is going to end as we know it. There will be eternity when this ends. 
There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, a new heaven, and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. Wherein the fullness of the glory of the Lord is actually the light source whereby we walk around. That's going to be a different time. Because the fullness of the glory of the Lord is not visible very much in our world today. You can see it a little bit in us and some of the things that God's people do, but it's very invisible largely in the world. Matter of fact, there's a lot of darkness in our world. And so this gives us the end of the story. But it also shows us this glory. The first coming showed us his humanity. His second coming is going to show us his deity. You see, when Jesus came the first time, he didn't wander around. I am God. You know, he didn't do that. He didn't wander through Galilee, you know, with a gigantic, you know, halo over his head and the glory of God shining round about him. And wherever he went, people dropped over dead from the glory of God. That didn't happen. He did not show himself in that glorious state to mankind the first time. But when he comes back, he is going to show his glory. It's going to be visible. And so, time as we know it, the church age is going to end. And the glorious kingdom, the fullness of God's presence, is going to begin in this book. And so as you note that, also note that this is a single revelation. Why? Because it's about a single person and his reign throughout all of what we call time, into the eternal. And so it is the revelation. This is not the book of revelations. Okay? So leave the S off of it. It's not a series of revelations. And a lot of people come into an actual theological problem from putting the S on the end of revelation. And here's why. They think it is a series of revelations. And that's not what it is. It is Jesus exposed throughout time. So if you just think it's a bunch of series of events, then you start trying to time the events and look to the events singularly and figure out when this is going to happen and that's going to happen instead of always looking for the full revelation of Jesus Christ, people are looking for parts of it. They're looking for the revelations, not the revelation and the fullness of it, the singular one. This is the singular revelation of Jesus. And so when we talk about it, we want to talk about it that way. The next thing that I kind of really want to delve into here is because it's a revelation of Jesus Christ and God wants us to know who Jesus is, amen? God wants us to know who Jesus is, amen? He said, I want to make known to you the fullness of Him who is. That's what His Word plainly declares. The fullness of it. Don't you think He wants us to know what Revelation says? if this is the revelation of Jesus. So we need to understand what he's getting about. Because God shows God's things to God's people. Amen? It's closed to people who don't know Jesus. So if you talk to people about the book of Revelation in great detail with non-believers, they're going to look at you like you have a horn, several sets of eyes, and a couple of extra arms hanging out of the side of your body. They're going to think you're absolutely out of your mind. This whole thing of devouring locusts. What are you talking about? What, what do you mean the heavens will one day melt like wax? What do you mean that the earth is going to be struck with a plague wherein a third of the world's population will be wiped out at one time? We're all sitting there worried about the Keystone XL pipeline. We're worried about whether we're going to lose glaciers. Again, I'm not against taking environmental things to the extent to which they're beneficial to humankind. We need to do that. But it ain't going to save this earth. Because my Bible says one day it's going to get undone. So all this stuff becomes kind of a, a bunch of relative nonsense to an unbeliever because they're thinking... Well, if we save the whales and save beavers and sea otters, and if we can somehow reconstitute a mastodon or two, and if we, you know, make sure that we never use plastic bags, and we collect all the plastic bottles that have ever existed, and we get them out of the landfill, that somehow we can save the world. My Bible says you can't save this world because to save it would be to destroy it. 
God is actually going to do a makeover on the world. You're going you're gonna to love the new one. If you thought this one was awesome, if you've gone to Yosemite and you've wandered through Yosemite Valley on a nice clear day, if you like this one, you're going to love the next one. These events are going to happen. And so it's closed to people who don't know Jesus. That's hard for us to get wrap our minds around. But the fact of the matter is, for people who don't know the Lord, they're out watching the new Nick Cage movie, you know, thinking that, wow, yeah, that's what's going to happen. You know, there's going to be all these things are, that we can kind of explain with our human minds. When these things begin to unfold, human beings are going to be shocked. They're going to be in awe. They're going to be dismayed. They're going to look at it, and people who have already heard the gospel message but didn't believe are going to be going, give me Jesus because I know what's coming next. You see, prophecy is an outworking of this divine necessity. It's the easiest way to understand it. This is God's plan, and because it is God's plan, he is going to work out so that his plan comes to fruition. When we talk about God's sovereignty, his purposes and plans, they cannot ultimately be thwarted. There is no chance that these things are not going to come to pass. Non-Christian looks at it and goes, you are whack, dude. There's something seriously wrong with your mind. I mean, we just need to get rid of you Christians and everything would be okay. And that's the cry of the world, isn't it? Did you see how quickly those three Muslims that were murdered, did you see how quickly it was called a hate crime and initially reported by multiple news sources that it had to be a Christian? Do you know who it was? It was an atheist. They were arguing over a parking space. And yet, the first opportunity that the news media gets, wow, see, this is just like the Crusades. We're the problem. So they're going to be really happy when we get raptured. Because the problem's going to be over. It's like, good, the aliens came and got them. Hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. That's what they're going to be thinking. When you read this book, it gives you the promise of the blessing that you know we're going to know some things that other people don't know. When you look at the word signified here, and it, it's important to grasp this particular process, it's it's as if God's signing his name to it. It's as, as if he's working these things in his perfect plan and timing. And so he's going to ultimately give us enough knowledge for us to understand these things, which is really important for us to know, because some people, when they read this particular book, what happens to them is it gets so phantasmagorical. That's a Disney word, by the way. Phantasmagorical. It gets out of your head a little bit. But they look at it and it's just like, well, you know, I mean, what kind of nutcase? You know, was John like smoking hashish in the cave? What was up with, you know, he, he, he was on some heavy opiates or something. That's where he got this from. So in order for us to, to be able to say, look, this is all about Jesus. Jesus needs to put his signature on it. He's going to do that. He's going to say, it's from me. I didn't give this this book so we could speculate about prophecy. He didn't give us this book so we could kind of look at it and go, wow, that's crazy, that's weird. I wonder when that's going to happen. He gave it to us to reveal Jesus. And so we're going to see Jesus in this book. When, when you look at that phrase, must shortly take place, I want to just give you a little bit of an easier way to understand it. There's actually a word there that's from the original language, the Greek language. It is take. And take is the root word from which we get taxi and we get tachometer. We get a number of words, taxon. There's a number of words that we get there. But those words are always relative. In other words, a taxi stops and goes, amen? It can, it's supposed to get you fast from one place to another. But fast in your, when you're in traffic is actually slow, isn't it? Fast when you're on the freeway is actually fast. It's relative to the situations that exist. The same is true with a tachometer. You can rev a tachometer up and go nowhere. Amen? You sit in your car, watch it, and you can put it all the way over to the red line. You're going nowhere. It matters what gear you're in. 
So it matters where you're at on the timeline when you're talking about shortly. Shortly on the timeline from when John originally wrote this would be to this date 2,000 years. Shortly for us might be the rapture happening next week, tonight. Who, who knows? Shortly because the, the engine's been revved up. We've seen an awful lot of things already come to pass. They're done. They're over with. And so we're no longer sitting at the airport waiting to pick up a passenger in the taxi. We've already driven almost all the way to the destination. We're about to get out of the taxi and go home to heaven. You get the picture? You see, shortly now means not just a journey, which wasn't going to be very long to begin with in light of eternity, but shortly means we're about ready to open the door. It's relative to where you are in the whole plan. Not just shortly as in a couple of seconds while you're ordering your burger. It takes into account the entire period known as the church age. So everything from Pentecost to the day the church gets raptured. So for us, we left the airport a long time ago. There's one thing you have to watch. If you haven't traveled much, you haven't been around the world and traveled to various cities where you need to take taxis to get to places, you have to be very careful about which taxi drivers you grab because they will take what we like to call the long way. And all of a sudden you're wondering, you know, why am I paying you $875? And I think it was a mile and two-tenths to get to where I was going. And then you found out they went to another state before they dropped you off. That's kind of the way it is for the church. It's like we kind of thought that it was like going to be a mile and two-tenths to get to the rapture. That's what John thought when he penned the words. That's no doubt what the disciples were thinking. They're like, ah, it'll be pretty soon. Jesus will be back. But we're taking our time getting there. That time's almost over. So when you think about shortly, think about a whole journey. You weren't quite sure how you were going to get there. But the thing's been driven a long ways, and you're just about to get to the end. Every moment that you spend is a moment closer to the end. Shortly. Notice he says these things must take place. That means a logical necessity that A follows by B, and B is followed by C. These things must take place. He doesn't tell us the direct order. It's just that everything he says will take place in its time. It's a logical necessity. It must happen. None of it can be left out. That's why when we talk about where are we in the world's, in, in, in the church age, there was a key event that happened in May of 1948 because it fulfilled the only prophecy left to come to pass that puts Israel back in the land speaking their own language so that these things can now unfold. Up until that point in time, there was no group of people before that that could have said the rapture could happen at any moment. We now live after the establishment of the national Israel back in the land. So from here on out, every day can be the day. So now it's really short. And it must happen. So as these things begin to unfold, God's purposes are certain. They're sure. They're true. They're yes. They're amen. And so he gives us a bunch of signs in here. He gives us things that we would not otherwise know. He gives us a picture of, of some things in here. It's like when you read the letters to the seven churches, which we'll do, you sit there and you man, a persecuted church? Has there not been a persecuted church throughout time? There was a real persecuted church. There was a church that suffered persecution in that day and time. There's always been one in the world. There's still one in the world. And there's going to be one to the very end. You start looking at these things, it's like, wow. There's never been a period of time on the face of the earth where there hasn't been a persecuted church. There also hasn't been a period of time on the face of the earth where there hasn't been a loving church. And there hasn't been a time on the face of the earth where there hasn't been a lukewarm church. You start looking at some of these things that Jesus outright tells us and says, look, this is the way it's going to be. I know these things about you. He's giving you a glimpse of the future. It's how he signs the book. 
And he says, look, if any of these things don't come to pass, don't believe me. But if they all come to pass, I signed it. They're my signs. And so as these symbols occur, they give us insight into the fact that these are the words of the Lord. They're true. This is also the only book of the Bible that gives us a systematic plan for the future. It begins in that day and time, and it is continuing right to this very day. Look around the world. See if the world isn't aching right now for a single world government. See if the world isn't aching right now for a single world monetary system. See if the world isn't aching right now for a single world religion. Can you imagine if the Roman Catholic Church and all the Protestant denominations and all the Muslims and Hindus and everybody came together and we truly did the coexist thing as it's intended on that bumper sticker? You know, we're we're Christo-Roman Catholic Buddhist or something? I don't know what we'd be, but we'd be something under the Antichrist called a singular world religion. We'd all be going, well, you know, yeah, that's we all believe the same thing. The world's crying out for that. I was watching the Kelly Files last night. And yes, I do watch Fox News sometimes. Sometimes I can't take it and I have to turn it off. Every once in a while I watch MSNBC when I'm looking for comedy. Drives <laughs> me crazy. But I'm sitting there watching this, and it's like asking the press secretary of the United States of America a simple question. Don't you think these people were targeted in this deli because it was a Jewish deli? Well, no, they weren't individually targeted. That's kind of like saying the Jews that were burned in the gas chambers weren't individually targeted. Okay? They knew full well that these were Muslims killing Jews. That's what happened. And yet nobody wants to say it. We we can't really say that. We need to just all come together in the same worship of somebody. This book tells you who that somebody is going to be. It's going to be the Antichrist. He's going to pull everybody together. And the world aches for that right now. Gives you history. It gives you a glimpse of the future, what lies ahead. It's also a book that's relative to our Old Testament. Revelation uses symbols, uses more than any other book in the New Testament, but it's also tied into the all of the allusions uh, that God had in the Old Testament, over 400 of them. And so there are plenty of references to how God's been at work in the world since the beginning of time. It's not just isolated. Some people say, ah, it's just too isolated. It's not isolated at all. And in fact, you're going to see the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You find it unveiled here in the book of Revelation. And so it's a beautiful picture of the things that lie ahead. Hard for us to grasp in the midst of all the stuff that's going on in it. But it is going to happen. It also gives us the importance of prophecy. Notice the three things that I mentioned to you already. This was, this was brought by an angel proclaiming the word of God, which is truth. Amen? It, it is absolute truth. And in fact, the term angel is going to be used some 70 times in the book of Revelation. It always means messenger. It means the same thing. And sometimes those messengers are angelic beings. In this case, who knows? Maybe this is the prophet Daniel came back to... Because remember, Daniel said at the end of days, in, in Daniel chapter 12, he said knowledge is going to increase. He's talking about knowledge of the last days, the things that are going to happen in the final days that this world is in, exist, in existence. All of a sudden... Wow, this crazy information now starts to make sense. You see, if you, we'd have been talking about these things a hundred years ago, we'd have a little bit of problem because there was no national Israel. It didn't exist. There's a bunch of Bedouin sheep herders scattered all over what was then called the Palestinian Mandate. 
After World War One, the Balfour Mandate comes down. It's like we're going to divide this up. We're going to give, you know, these people at least a place to exist. Craziness to talk about it a hundred years ago. It's no longer crazy. There's an Israeli flag. There's an Israeli prime minister. There are Jewish people speaking Hebrew. And they're in the traditional land that was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a new time. Signified by an angel. And so John gives us these three things that's being testified to. The Word of God. You know, when we think of the Word of God, remember what Jesus said. Remember in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Sanctify them by your truth, God. For your word is truth. You sent me into the world. Jesus said those words. And I also have sent them into the world. You and I, the disciples. First beginning with the original twelve, and now all of us. He said, I sent them into the world with truth. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified in the truth. This is truth. People don't like it. The world doesn't like it. Talk about the book of Revelation, a lot of people just kind of roll their eyes. Really? That book? Are you kidding me? First thing that we see here is it's a witness of the Word of God. God's Word is indispensable to understanding what He wants of us, who He is, how He functions. You cannot understand that without understanding the Word of God. So the Word of God is in view here. It's 100% truth. The testimony of Jesus. What was the testimony of Jesus? All the things that John saw. He was there at the trials of Jesus. He was there at the beating of Jesus. He was there at the crucifixion of Jesus. He was there at the resurrection of Jesus. He and Peter were the first two guys to the tomb after the Marys beat them there. Ladies had more faith than the guys then. In some cases, they still do. But you see what was going on there. It's a testimony of Jesus. The same guy that writes this letter saw the risen Lord. Saw him after he was dead, after he was buried, and after he was resurrected. So it's a testimony of the things that John saw pertaining to Jesus. John could have said, look, I was there. I was at the Last Supper. I was with him. I watched him heal blind Bartimaeus. I was standing there when the widow of Nain's son was raised. You can't tell me I didn't see what I saw. I saw it. And that was the testimony of who Jesus was. All of the miracles that Jesus did, John saw almost every one of them that we have recorded here. And remember that it says in the Gospels, and many more things not recorded here Jesus did. John saw them all. He walked with him. And then finally, as you look at truth, truth isn't truth if it's hidden, is it? Truth has to be revealed for us to understand that it's truth. And so that's what this book is going to do. It's going to cause us to see several things. First, that God intends us to read it. Notice what it says, blessed is he who reads. It's a very simple command. A lot of people don't want to read the book of Revelation. I shared with you. I, I, I grew up in the Baptist church. I started going to the Baptist church when I was about 11 years old. I did that through almost my entire high school years. When I began college, still going to the Baptist church, I never, not once, did I hear a Bible study out of the book of Revelation. Never. Not once. In nearly ten years. Not once. Didn't touch it. Revelation 3.20 was used as an evangelical verse, actually kind of sort of honestly taken out of context. can be kind of sort of meant that way. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Yeah, it kind of is an invitation, but that's actually not what it's talking about. The book of Revelation is meant to be understood, but you've got to read it. You actually have to crack the pages and go, man, I need to figure this out. And by the way, that promise is repeated in chapter 22. So it begins with this promise. It ends with the same promise. 
Read it. The word blessed or blessing that's used here is very important to us because we get, as we do with the Beatitudes, remember those are the blessed things that are of the body of Christ. Blessed is he who is a peacemaker. You remember those things. We studied them. Those blessings, it isn't actually what it means because it actually means to be given God's divine favor. It's not just happiness. It's not just giddiness. It's not just a big smile on your face. It's literally having divine favor with God. And so when we think about being blessed, if you want to have divine favor with God, you need to read the book of Revelation. It'll help you have divine favor. Because you're going to understand things about your world that people who don't read it won't understand. So the first thing is to read it. There is a absolute divine privilege favor that comes upon you for doing that. And so we read it. We also have to hear it. And in hearing it, it's not talking about, you know, me reading the verse to you and you hearing the verse. It's us being engaged in the act of listening. Because I can talk all day and I can tell you there's a lot of people who don't hear what I say. You know how I know that? Because they end up in my office and I just taught on it a week ago and they're going, uh-huh. They were not listening. They heard my voice, they heard the words, but they were not intent on hearing it. There is a difference between simply audibly hearing sounds and hearing with your heart, hearing with your mind, seeking to gain understanding. And so there is a blessing for hearing it, really taking it in. And then finally, the third area is keeping it. And I want you to be really, really careful because some people wrongly turn this into an action like there's something that I need to go do with it. That's not what it's saying. It actually means to guard in the original language. It means to keep guard over. In other words, protect it. Don't let people erode it. Don't let people say it's not true. Don't let people dismiss it. Guard the word that's contained within the book of Revelation. And, of course, that gives you action. So when you talk about world events, of course you're going to incorporate what you understand about the book of Revelation into the things that you see in your world. But it means to protect it, to guard it. It, it. it has the old English connotation of put it in the keep, put it behind the fortress walls, and make sure it's protected. We need to stand guard because these principles, these words are going to be challenged. Matter of fact, people try and make it into, you know, well, that's just nonsense. No, it's not nonsense. One day it's going to happen. The fact that you don't understand that the moon and the stars could possibly fall from the sky doesn't mean that God wasn't telling you the truth. Just because you don't believe that there's ever going to be fire raining down from the heavens doesn't mean that it's not going to come true. We may not understand exactly what that means, but it's going to happen. We have to guard it. We have to keep it. We can't let people steal it from us. We can't let them deny that it's true and sit there and go, well, maybe you're right. I've had a lot of Christians that told me, you know, well, it's just been proven that these things couldn't happen. I said, by whom? Does somebody have more knowledge than God that I don't, I'm unaware of? I haven't met him yet? Does somebody understand the, the, the workings of the entire universe better than God? Because what God plans to do, God is more than able to do. Amen? That's all I'm saying. Sometimes you just have to leave God God. Sometimes we try and make God into men. We call that an anthropomorphism. We try and attribute human characteristics to God. We talk about God's hands and God's fingers and all those kinds of things. And they're helpful sometimes for us understanding God. But the fact of the matter is God doesn't need fingers. He spoke the universe into existence. It doesn't say God went over and took a universe seed and kind of fiddled with it and let it blow up. It doesn't say that. It says that God spoke the universe into existence. I leave God God. You need to leave God God in the book of Revelation. So you keep him as God. So when he says he's coming back in a cloud with great glory, I believe that. When he says that he is going to himself come back and fight the battle of Armageddon, I believe that. 
when he says he is going to slay the wicked after the tribulation, I believe that. Just because people can't figure out how God's going to bring all these people into this 13-mile-long valley and see them defeated there doesn't mean that he can't do it. We have to guard it. We have to keep it. It's the picture he's given here. As we think on the book of Revelation, as we ponder the book of Revelation, we have to remember that these things are, are not done in our time frame. They're not done in our understanding. We may well have the laws of physics turned upside down. We may have the laws of thermodynamics turned upside down. We may have all of the things that we now hold dear as the basic laws of science, whereby we govern most things on our earth and understand them. They may be completely overthrown for a period of time, and I can almost guarantee you to some degree that that is going to be true. People say, well, that can't happen. It's been happening, and that's one of the reasons that the theory of evolution is so damaging to the body of Christ. Because if you believe that God needs billions of years to accomplish something, and you have made God need time, which God doesn't need anything. God himself alone is able. He doesn't need the laws of physics. He, He does not need the periodic table of elements. He doesn't need any of those things. He is able to create ex nihilo from nothing. So if he wants something, he can simply make it so. Including when he does things. And so as we look at these passages of Scripture, we have to remember that to us, uh, these things are going to happen uh, seemingly now. For 2,000 years they haven't happened. But your, your Bible says that these things are going to happen in a twinkle of an eye. The twinkle of an eye, and I've seen all kinds of calculations, the most common one is about one-six billionth of a second. That's how fast that is. Now, am I saying that it's going to... No, it just means instantaneous. We're going to be here and then be there. We're going to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. We're going to be on this earth and then off this earth and in heaven. From our perspective, it's as if your eye twinkled and boom, it happened. So all of this talk, well, you know, this has to happen and that has to happen and this has to happen and those things have to happen. All of the things that have to happen for the rapture to occur are already in the past. So from here on out, it's twinkling of an eye time. There are going to be two people walking in the field. One will remain, one caught up. Two working at a mill, one will be working, the other one gone. From a human perspective, done. Not just faster than you can snap your fingers, which is about one two hundredth of a second. But that little glint in your eye that just seems to be there, you don't even you can't even tell other than the fact that you saw it happen. You don't know how long it was. And so he reminds us, look, now it's sooner than never. And when you read that passage here in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven, amen? We're not even actually of this earth as the body of Christ. We're actually of heaven. We're God's adopted sons and daughters. Do you get that? This world is not our home. Our home is in heaven. And so while we're here on this earth, we may spend our 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years, the last surviving uh, person, uh, man that was alive when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and sunk the Arizona, died yesterday. He was 100 years old. That's a long time. I'm sitting there looking at my life and going, man, I would still have almost half of my life. I'd have 40 years left to live if I lived to be 100. That seems like an eternity then I look at my sons and go, man, they were in diapers last week. <laughs> now imagine from God's perspective, all of time he's outside of it. He looks at it and he's going, well, there's the beginning, there's the end. Instantaneous. Really quick. He's going to transform our lowly bodies into those things that are glorious, just like Christ. That's going to happen so fast your head's going to spin. You're going to be sitting at the marriage supper with the lamb going, how to get here? Wasn't I just at, I was at church like just a second ago? And so finally, as we wrap this up tonight, he says, I, John, 
to the seven churches which are in Asia. He just gives his name outright. He wants everybody to know who it is. Make sure that there's no mistaking who wrote this book. And it's a good thing he did. Because when you read it, then when he says the signs, the witness of things that were and are and will be, he was an eyewitness to those events. So when you have somebody that's testifying of something that they actually saw, and they write those things down, and they actually happened, and then they tell you that they got these things from the Lord, and there are things in the future that are going to happen, you can be fairly certain that they're not making it all up. We call that the internal testimony of the Word itself. Look at it and go, the Word itself testifies that these things are true. You link them one after another. You look at the prophetic record of the Old Testament and go, man, every last thing that was said about the life, the birth, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, where he would be born, what city he would grow up in, all of these things that were testified of him, to the, down to the fact he'd be crucified before it was even invented, down to the fact that they who pierced him, as, as is declared by Scripture, will one day give their lives to him. All of those things are internal evidence that the rest of it's true. John saying, look, I saw it. I saw the fulfilling of Zechariah's prophecy when Jesus came into Jerusalem. I was there. He say, I'm telling you the rest of these things that I'm writing down, I got from the same source. I got them from Jesus. That's where they came from. He tells us he's going to send this letter off to seven very specific churches. We're going to spend a couple of chapters uh, on those seven churches. They're actual churches. They're not symbols, but they are also symbols of things to come. And so they were literal churches that had literal issues, literal problems, literal difficulties. They literally gave us a view of the entire church age from then to now. Remember Paul stayed at Ephesus. He stayed there longer than any of the other churches. John writes Revelation just 50 years after that. It's not a long period of time. So we have the opportunity to hear those things, to live those things, to see those things, to do those things. And he gives us a, a window. He says grace and peace. Look, it, it's, it's this simple. There cannot be peace with God without the grace of God. It's that simple. There is no peace with God because peace with God comes from having your sins blotted out. You, you, can't, you can't take your sin to heaven. You know, I've had conversation with people. Well, you know, it's just God's going to just overlook them. No, he's not just going to overlook them. He is going to remove them so far as the east is from the west. He's not just simply going to kind of, you know, like like... We live now, some of you are old enough in here, you remember the IBM Selectric typewriters? And you had to put the correction ribbon in them, and so when you're typing them and then you correct something that was wrong, you could just type back over it and it like blah, 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 and blotted them out. But underneath that was still the original mistyped words. It's not like that. It's as if he went back and typed over them and the words themselves are gone. They are no longer there. It's as if you could take the paper and make there no evidence that the key ever struck the paper. Praise God. Amen? Amen. East to the west. They're in a place that does not exist so far as we are concerned. They're gone. So when you talk about what he's doing here, he's saying, look, if you want the unmerited favor of God, you want the peace of God, it comes through salvation, that grace of God. And so he's saying this book is about revealing Jesus Christ in a way that you understand the grace of God so that you can receive the peace of God. So it isn't a downer book. It is the most victorious book actually in the entire Bible if you want to look at it that way. You want to know why? For me, Satan gets his due. <laughs> Old Forked Horn gets his upcomings. He gets the beat down. Finally gets what's been coming for a long time. 
It's a book of victory. And so when we begin to unfold all these things, unwrap these ideas, Jesus is really all we need. And to us, God is either an antagonist or a protagonist. He's either with us or he's against us. We're either with him or we're, we're against him. You can't stand in the middle. And there's a lot of people that don't really know the grace of God. But this book reveals the grace of God because he offers a way out. I always say to people, wow, you know, that's just not fair. Yeah, that's fair. You have an opportunity right now to receive the grace of God and none of these things you will ever know. You don't even have to worry about it. One day you'll step out of time into eternity. You'll see the face of Jesus. So don't blame God. God's given us the answer to the problem. The question is, will you take it? Will you take the cure for what ails us? And that's God's grace, his unmerited favor. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. And Lord, we just ask that you'd bless us and anoint us and touch our lives, Lord, in a very special way as we study this book. God, we're so thankful it's about Jesus. Lord, if it's about bombs and destruction and death and just simply the reign of the Antichrist and Babylon and all of these crazy-sounding things, then, Lord, it might well be like a novel, but it's not. It's your character throughout time working to see that mankind doesn't have to experience the penalty of sin. And so, God, we bless you that it's truth, for thy word, O Lord, is truth. And we cling to that. As you, Jesus, spoke those words to the disciples, uh, we believe it. And so, God, impart to us your truth. Bless us. Lord, get us home safe. Bring us back together again to study one more time. Lord, if you should happen to deem that tonight's the night that you're going to call the church home, uh, we praise you for that. But we also ask, God, that as we await your return, that we be busy about our Father's business, making disciples of all men, of all nations. We praise you. We bless you. We thank you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen and amen.